0: Hello everyone, this is John, the host of The Secret Sits. We began this podcast three years and 118 episodes ago, and like most podcasts, we feel we've improved over the past few years. So today, we are going to revisit our original case from our very first episode. We have re-recorded that episode in our current format to match what you are accustomed to hearing today. We hope you enjoy. The Hart Family Murder A Story in One Part. Today, I want to start with a question Who are you? Why do we have secrets? What would happen if we just showed the world our actual selves? We dance round in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. Many of us have so much social media these days that the lines between reality and social media, reality, sometimes get blurred. Sometimes this is on purpose, maybe because we do not feel like giving 100% of ourselves out to the universe, Or possibly, there's a fear of accepting our own flaws and allowing everyone around us to see these flaws for what they are, the parts of us that make us unique and interesting, but somehow still embarrass us. There is a reason we as a communal society have social media and put ourselves on it, and those reasons are different for everyone. In today's episode, social media is going to play a part, a very large part, in the things that happen to a family who maybe wanted to use social media for a joyful and honorable reason. Or maybe it was more sinister and more of a secret than anyone realized before it was too late. Today, we're going to discuss the story of Jennifer and Sarah Hart, and how a notable and poignant social media circus contributed to a tragic family annihilation. Jennifer and Sarah Hart were both originally from South Dakota, and both women attended Northern State in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Both women decided to major in elementary education, with Jennifer focusing on special education. This is where Jen and Sarah's romantic relationship started— The women stayed closeted at first. However, they eventually decided that their relationship was important enough to them to come out of that closet. Now, 2004 South Dakota was not one of the most gay-friendly of places to come out of the closet. When I chose to come out of the closet, it was 1997 in rural Alabama. So I know the feeling of ostracism these ladies were dealing with. This socially exclusive behavior by their fellow South Dakotans prompted the couple to move to Alexandria, Minnesota in 2004. Things seemed to be going pretty well for Jen and Sarah after the move, and the couple decided to look into foster care and adoption. The couple fostered their first child in 2004. In previous interviews, this foster child has asked to remain anonymous so we will continue to honor her wishes here today. This foster child was 15 years old when she came to live with Sarah and Jen, and there was conflict between the three women almost from the start. You see, Jen and Sarah wanted to impose their ideals and parenting onto this foster child, but possibly they could not allow themselves to take a step back and look at the situation from the outside and make adjustments. You see, this foster child was also a tomboy and did not like or want any of the girly things that Jen and Sarah were providing her. At one point, Jen and Sarah took her to get one of those makeup counter makeovers where you sit in a chair at the makeup counter in one of those big anchor stores at the mall and everyone walks by as a girl in a strange white lab coat cakes makeup on your face... And soon you look like a 30-year-old woman rather than a 15-year-old girl. Well, of course, this was not what she wanted. And accordingly so, she sat sulking through the makeover process. Her head drooped and retreating into herself, as all of us did when we were insecure teenagers, doing something that was being thrust upon us by our well-meaning yet naive parents. It is now 2005, and same-sex marriage has become a huge topic of conversation all around the world. It was not legal in the United States of America at this point. However, Sarah goes to the court and asks the court to legally change her name to match that of her domestic partner, Jen. The court allows Sarah to change her name, and I'm sure Jen and Sarah now feel as close to married as they will be able to get for quite a while. I remember 2005, my now husband and I had been together for just a couple of years. However, the feeling that you have inside, when you are wondering if you will ever have the same rights as everyone around you, are almost insurmountable in your heart, and it's a lot of weight to bear. So I'm sure this name change lifted Sarah and Jen's hearts and elevated how at least they saw their relationship. The couple now had applied to adopt children. Maybe in their minds, this is what they truly wanted. Not a foster child, but a child that would belong to them. A child that isn't going to get taken away whenever the foster system decided to do so. Fostering children is an awesome thing. Giving a warm and loving home to a child in need is a selfless act but not everyone can handle it. For some, falling in love with a child while they're in your care, just to have to watch them leave after being adopted by another family is just more than some can bear. And isn't it their right to feel that way? On March 4th, 2006, Jen and Sarah received the call from Colorado County, Texas, that they had a set of three siblings for Jen and Sarah to adopt. They were so excited. They were going to get their own kids. And they even involved their foster daughter in the excitement, telling her that she was going to be a big sister to these new kids. I would imagine she was excited. To go from being the only child in a house to being the big sister of three new kids would at the very least bring some level of excitement into your life. Now, we are on week one to the day Jen and Sarah's new kids are arriving from Texas. Their foster daughter has an appointment with her therapist, and during the course of her therapy appointment, her therapist, her therapist, tells her that the hearts felt she was no longer a good fit for their family and that they would not be picking her up from this appointment, and she would not be moving into a new home. She never saw Jen and Sarah Hart again, and she remembers being devastated. Jen and Sarah's three children were Abigail, or Abby, who was two, Hannah, age four, and Marcus, age seven. Their biological parents had their parental rights terminated by a court in Harris County, Texas, in August, and the children were formally adopted by Jen and Sarah by September. Abby wore glasses and had a bright smile. She loved the color lime green, and she loved exploring in the wilderness. Hannah had a spunky personality. She had high-set apple cheeks and was missing both of her front teeth. Marcus, the oldest, loved to read. He loved to read so much that he read the entire Twilight vampire novel in one night. One year for Christmas, Marcus asked for a world with no cancer. Starting in 2006, Jen became a stay-at-home mom, while Sarah worked as a supervisor at a herburger shop. Sarah was described by friends and co-workers as being very confident, assertive, and she could also sometimes be intimidating. Jen was described as a bit warmer and more relatable, These three children brought very little drama in their first two years with Jen and Sarah. And in June of 2008, Jen and Sarah adopted three additional children. Jen and Sarah had asked for something very specific during the adoption process. They asked for black children and sets of siblings. Well, that is exactly what they got. Three more children who were all black and also siblings— this adoption brought Devonte, age 6, Jeremiah, age 4, and Sierra, age 3. These three came to the Hart House from Houston, Texas. These three new children came from a bit of a rough start in life. Their biological mother lost her custody of the children because, like so many Americans, she was struggling with substance abuse problems— and at least one of the children had tested positive for crack cocaine at the time of their births. Now, I'm no adoption expert, nor have I ever had to deal with Child Protective Services, or CPS, in my life, but there are a few things I wanted to cover in this situation. The children's familial aunt took the children with a condition that their mother was not allowed to have any contact with the children, I believe that this is the first natural placement through CPS. If there is a family member who is willing and capable to take the children so that they can have the smallest disruption possible, then that is a good thing. However, in this case, their aunt, just like all of us, had some struggles. Her struggles included money. And hey, who doesn't struggle with money sometimes? Or all the time? So... After having just taken in three new children, her place of work called and asked if she could come in and cover an extra shift. And she thought, well, I need the money. So needing the extra money, but unable to find a babysitter at the last moment, she called her sister, the baby's biological mother, to come and babysit while she ran to pull the extra shift at work. Things may have gone swimmingly, but this day, also just happened to be the day that CPS had a caseworker do an unannounced surprise visit to the house and check on the kids. And when the caseworker showed up to find the children being supervised by the one person who was not allowed contact with them, the caseworker pulled the children from the house. The aunt attempted to obtain permanent custody of the children, but because of this incident, the courts would not allow it. Sometimes the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think we have all done something like this at some point in our lives. Our intentions and our minds are so good. But one incident can mar those intentions, and maybe what we thought would make a situation better just boggles it all up. But that's okay, because we can move forward and grow from it and become better for it. So at this point, Jen and Sarah are making most of their income off of the adoption stipend they are allotted from the state of Texas while still living in Minnesota. The three new children brought so much life into the Hart House. Sierra was the smallest, now the baby of the family, and she loved her cat called Sebastian. Jeremiah was small for his age. He was born with cocaine already in his system, but he was doing okay. And everyone called him J-Man. And Devante. I think Devante was an old soul in a child's body. Devante loved animals, and he hated Donald Trump. He carried a sign with him everywhere, reading, Free hugs! Pass it on! And he had a special bond with Jen, which would sometimes garner him special attention. Now, Jen was the stay-at-home mom, and possibly because of this, she became almost obsessed with social media. Jen's social media of choice was mostly Facebook. Jen was extremely active on social media, and she loved to post pictures of the children doing everyday activities with well-written and thought-out captions. Each post shows a loving and wholesome family. But just like we discussed earlier, Social media is a tool. A tool you can use and manipulate to make it look like you have whatever kind of life you would like to portray. And I will say this. I know there are people that are completely open about their lives and you see their good and bad days on their social media. But there are those that only like to post about good things. And looking at their social media, you might think, What are they hiding? Or no one's life is all just good. And you would be right. No one's life is all good. But some people only feel comfortable sharing the good. And there's nothing wrong with that. Misery loves company. But for some, sharing hardships is just too big of a window into their soul. And they're not comfortable sharing everything with everyone in the world. The hearts found their comfortable place in this world when they started attending transformational festivals. These festivals were full of music and dancing, yoga and mindfulness. The people who attended these festivals were and are all about inclusion and acceptance. This seemed to be exactly what a pair of lesbian mothers with six black children needed. Jen would often post photos from these festivals, with all of the children wearing huge smiles and would post inspiring updates from their daily life. One friend said she was a master poster. Commenters would leave glowing remarks about their parenting. Some even asked if they would ever think of doing a reality show. They would come to be known as the Heart Tribe at these festivals, and there was something magnetic about this family. They drew the attention of everyone around them, and they were easily recognized by everyone who attended these festivals. Jen was also obsessed with one of those online games called Oz Broken Kingdom, where you have to build a community of other players and spend actual money to move along in the game. One online friend from this gaming community said that Jen was one of the highest-ranking players, which would have cost a lot of money and almost all of her free time. So, as she is supposedly raising these children, she is at home playing an online video game for 12 to 14 hours a day and putting their family into almost $16,000 in debt. In 2008, while the family was living in Minnesota— Hannah Hart was seen with bruises on her left arm. And when a teacher asked Hannah about the bruise, she said she'd been hit by Jen with a belt. The school contacted Jen and Sarah about this allegation, and within months, all six children had been pulled out of public school for the rest of the year. Jen decided that she would homeschool the children. For some reason, the children were sent back to public school in 2009. In 2010, Abby told a school nurse that she had owies on her back and stomach. Now, I know when I was a kid, I had bruises and cuts and scrapes all of the time. For a while, I had to go get stitches at the ER so many times that the doctor knew me by name. I just want to add this because we can be an overly protective and litigious society And not that being overprotective of children is wrong, but sometimes kids get hurt on their own, just playing. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, sometimes adults are doing the wrong thing and they are causing childhood injuries, which is wrong and criminal. That happened to be Abby's claim about these owies. Abby told a story that she had found a penny And when it fell out of her pocket in front of Jen, Jen accused her of stealing the penny from God knows where. And it's a penny. But Abby told Jen that she had found the penny. And according to Abby, Jen held Abby's head underwater and she hit her. Sarah told the police that she had been the one to spank Abby. Jen backed up her account This is a point we have to question in good faith. Jen, by all accounts, from all the children, was the one issuing the physical discipline in the house. So why did the couple say it was Sarah? Did they have a fear that Jen would no longer be able to homeschool the children? Why would they purposely switch who had been the disciplinarian? It makes no sense. When the authorities got involved... All the children claimed that they had been spanked constantly and deprived of food. In 2010, Sarah was charged with malicious punishment of a child and misdemeanor domestic assault, according to Minnesota court records. One year later, Hannah reportedly told a school nurse that she had not eaten all day. The school nurse called Hannah's home and spoke to Sarah who claimed that Hannah was merely playing the food card and recommended that Hannah just be given water. Around this time, all six children were taken out of public school again and were homeschooled from then on. This most likely prompted the Hart family's next move, this time to Oregon. During the family's time in Oregon is when the misdeeds of this family finally start its trajectory toward a sad and cruel fate. As we know, Jen keeps an almost obsessive social media feed around the family. Pictures of the family at festivals, rallies, and around the house always working on art projects or playing music. One clip of the family shows the kids singing, and the only words to the song seem to be, we are so provided for. This is a place where all relations bring celebration to meditation, giving thanks for all creation. We are so provided for. We are so provided for. We are so provided for. We are so provided for constant life of illusions lived on social media that may have been hiding a much more sinister home life for these six children. Following their move to Oregon in 2013, a few people called into CPS to report some troubling things they had noticed. According to one CPS report, an anonymous person who called the children trained robots brought attention to the alleged facade of Jen's Facebook posts. Jen does this thing for her Facebook page, where the kids pose and are made to look like one big happy family. But after the photo event, they go back to looking lifeless. The person also said they seemed scared to death of Jen. A former friend of theirs also called Child Protective Services after the Hart family had stayed with them claiming Jen handled the children like a regimented boot camp, adding that she would often get angry if they laughed too loudly. CPS began an investigation into the Hart children's welfare. This investigation included separate interviews of everyone in the family, as well as interviews of people who knew the family. Two family friends said that the children were forced to raise their hand before speaking, could not wish each other a happy birthday, and could not laugh at the dinner table. There were other reports that the children were poorly fed and looked small for their ages. One family friend reported that Jen had ordered a pizza for the children, but each was only allowed to have one small slice. The next morning, when Jen discovered that the rest of the pizza was gone, she punished the children by not feeding them breakfast, and forcing them to lie on their beds for five hours. However, the interviews of the children themselves revealed no new incidents of abuse, nor did they mention anything that had happened in Minnesota. When Jen herself was interviewed, she claimed that any family problems were the results of others not being tolerant to two lesbian mothers with six African-American children. In the end, the investigation could not conclude whether the hearts were guilty of anything or whether there was a safety threat. While attending the Beloved Festival, Devante is dressed in a zebra onesie with the word Beloved shaved into his hairline. On a now-famous YouTube video, we can see Devante at this festival as the musician Xavier Rudd plays a guitar and chants on stage. He notices Devante in his zebra costume and a sign around his neck reading, Free Hugs. Devante approaches Xavier with tears in his eyes, and they embrace, which lasts over a minute, and you can see everyone in the crowd getting swept up in the moment. But as you watch this scene unfold, you start to notice that something isn't quite right. It's almost like Devontae won't let go, and he needed to receive this hug more than he needed to give it. Devontae Hart was 12 years old when he was thrust into the national spotlight. You may remember the photo of Devontae that went viral after the 2014 protest in Portland resulting from the Ferguson unrest. Now I know that there were a lot of protests in 2020, and for good reason, so just a reminder, the Ferguson unrest was because of the senseless killing of Michael Brown by Officer Darren Wilson, who no charges were brought against. Now, the Hart family is at the protests. Devante is dressed in a brown leather jacket with a blue shirt with an orange crew neck collar and a fedora hat. And he had his free hug sign, as always. In the photo, Devante is seen hugging a white police officer in riot gear with tears streaming down Devante's face, which we'll post again on our social media. The image became known as the hug felt around the world. Because of the notoriety of the hug felt around the world photo, the Hart family was suddenly getting a lot of attention. The photo and the story behind it had gone out over all of the mainstream media channels and had even been parodied on Saturday Night Live that week. The family was contacted by the Bernie Sanders campaign team and were invited to be on the bleachers directly behind Bernie at his campaign speech in Portland, Oregon in 2016. To cue your memory, the Hart family was standing in the bleachers behind then-presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders when a bird landed on his lectern during his campaign speech. They were exactly the right optics to be in the background of a very liberal political candidate. After all of the attention the family was receiving, Jen decided that the family needed a break from social media. By mid-2017, after their social media break, Jen revealed the family had moved to Woodland, Washington, their third state since adopting their children. And while they tried to remain private, their neighbors eventually reported an incident to the police. In August of that year, Hannah Hart jumped out of her bedroom window around 1.30 a.m. to try and contact her next-door neighbors, whom she had never met. Hannah had jumped out of her second-story bedroom window and run across the dark yard to the DeCabs. She started pounding on their door, and as soon as it opened, she ran into their house and ran directly upstairs to hide, pleading with them, don't make me go back, they're racists and they abuse us. Bruce DeCab asked Hannah to explain, and she said that they whip them with belts which at first did not seem out of place for Bruce, who admitted to Hannah that he too had been hit with a belt as a child. I mean, raise your hand if you were hit with a belt growing up. I have both of mine up. The couple did not know Hannah, and they had never met the children. They could soon hear the Hart family all outside in the yard looking for Hannah. Sarah and Jen then came to the cab house and knocked on the door. When Bruce and Dana opened the door, the hearts just pushed their way into the DeCab house with no invitation. They started searching the DeCab house for Hannah. They found her upstairs, curled up in the fetal position. Dana DeCab did not call the authorities at this time, but she did tell her father, Steve, who called the police and told them about the night Hannah had run to their house
1: kids that I feel is being highly abused and I can't wait until month in uh, Woodland Washington what's the address okay I'm gonna give you the address of my daughter's house because it's right next door okay what's going on there well they have four black children which that part doesn't matter and they're they're new here Texas but the other night a little girl jumped out of the second story window on the roof and then down onto the ground and ran to my daughter, and this is like 2 in the morning, begging them to help her, to help her. When did that happen? Uh, about three, four nights ago. Okay. And my son-in-law doesn't want to get involved, but the more I sit on it, I, I just can't live with it. Somebody's got okay. to go there and check on And these kids. so how old was the little kid that did that, that ran to your daughter's house? About 12 years old, 13. And when they came looking for her, she was begging my daughter not to let them know she was there, and then eventually my son-in-law let them know. And then she had all four of the kids come back later and to say everything was okay, and they were all standing at attention like they were just scared to death. And I think there's something very serious going on there. And they're here from Texas. The kids might even be kidnapped. Okay. Okay. And um so did the girl ever say why she was scared? No, she uh she was crying and and it was two in the morning and my daughter said the biggest problem was she's half awake, she couldn't believe what was going on. And okay. and, and basically my son in law's like most people, they don't wanna get involved. And so he's keeping my daughter out of it, but since she's told me about it, I just can't live with it. I'm very concerned for these kids. I just can't let this go any longer. Those kids, I think, are in very serious danger.
0: Jen later attempted to explain this away by saying that Hannah was lying, that the children occasionally acted out because they were drug babies, and that Hannah's biological mother was bipolar. But Consider that Hannah, at this time, was 15 years old and had been with Jen and Sarah for 11 years. I would think that excuse would not hold much water. After this incident, the DeCabs were also in contact with Devante, who was constantly begging for food and asking the DeCabs not to tell Jen about these requests. This started as once per day, but escalated to Devonte showing up at their home up to three times per day. They eventually put a box out in the yard between the two houses so Devante could pick up food from it with less chance of getting caught by his mothers. In later conversations with Devante, he told them that his mothers withheld food as punishment and that the children were sometimes abused. This, combined with the earlier incident with Hannah, made the DeCabs report the hearts to Child Protective Services. CPS workers tried to reach the hearts twice, with no success. It appeared that the family had packed up all six kids and the family dog, and they had just vanished. In their final days, the family members left their home in Woodland, California and headed south. Little is known of their seemingly hasty departure or the days that followed. But the details speak of a possibly disturbing demise for these children. On March 26th, one of Sarah's friends called 911, requesting a welfare check. The friend stated she had received a text from Sarah saying she was sick, and her phone was now dead, and no one had seen her or her wife. What happened to the family is not totally clear, but at some point on the 24th, the day after CPS was contacted by the DeCaps, the Hart family made it to Mendocino County, California. On the morning of March 25th, Jen Hart was recorded on surveillance video at a Safeway in Fort Bragg, about 15 miles south of where the family would be found dead the next day. They remained in the area until around 9 p.m., but there is no further information regarding the family's whereabouts until their SUV was found upside down on the Pacific coast. The vehicle appeared to have left a highway for a dirt turnout, then accelerated on that turnout for about 70 feet until it sailed off the cliff, Thelma and Louise style. No skid marks were found. And this led investigators to determine that Jen had intentionally driven her entire family off of the cliff. After some investigating and time, here is what we now know. Sarah was Googling questions, such as, can 500 milliliters of Benadryl kill a 120-pound woman? What over-the-counter medications can you take to overdose? How can I easily OD on over-the-counter medications? Is death by drowning relatively painless? How long does it take to die of hypothermia in water while drowning in a car? And what will happen when overdosing on Benadryl? Lastly, Sarah searched for no-kill shelters for dogs. At the time of her death, Sarah had taken... 42 doses of an off-brand Benadryl. The family had stopped to buy the medicine before leaving Washington. They had purchased both pill and liquid forms of the drug. Marcus had 19.2 doses. Abby had 14. Jeremiah had 8.8 doses at the time of their autopsies. Jen, who was driving, did not have any of the drug in her system, but she did have a blood alcohol level of 0.10 or around five beers. Jen did not drink, so she was probably intoxicated quickly and she was probably almost non-functioning. Sarah was Googling so many things, it stands to reason that they had no formal plan on what their intentions were going to be. The day before the accident, when Sarah bought those groceries at Safeway, She bought eight toothbrushes and deodorant at a nearby Dollar Tree. Not items you purchase hours before you plan on taking your own life. However, on Saturday night, they switched off their SUV's GPS system for the first time in eight years. Jen and Sarah Hart murdered all six of their children when Jen Hart drove their SUV over a 100-foot cliff on California State Route 1 in Mendocino County, California, near Westport. The bodies of five of the children, Hannah, 16, Marcus, 19, Jeremiah and Abigail, both 14, and Sierra, 12, were found in or nearby the vehicle, which landed upside down on a Pacific Ocean beach. The body of Devante, at 15 years old, has never been found. A Superior Court judge ruled that Devante was in the vehicle at the time of the crash and a death certificate was signed on April 3rd, 2019. When police searched their home, investigators described it as sterile, with empty picture frames hung on the wall. The kid's room had two small beds, a mattress on the floor, and not much else. I did not even get the indication that children lived in the house, one officer wrote in a report. While the women had been together for over 18 years after meeting at Northern State University, and Jen often posting loving tributes to Sarah on social media, Records released by the Clark County Sheriff's Office in November revealed marital issues. In a 2010 email, Jen described their home life as very roller ish She explained to a friend, For quite some time, I have felt very underappreciated and taken for granted in our relationship, and at times, unloved. While I know deep in my heart how much she loves me, She's just horrible about showing it. In a Facebook post in 2016, Jen wrote, We've come to realize that some think our lives are next to perfect. We're human, and we struggle through life's obstacle course just like everyone else. Later on, she looked back on the first half of 2017, claiming, This year slammed us hard. So here we are, left with a family full of secrets that they took to their untimely and watery grave. The secrets of Sarah and Jen and their true motives, their true intentions for having these precious children may never be known. The secrets of Devante's childhood innocence and the walls that crumbled in the public eye letting us glimpse into his beautifully tragic soul. What secrets do you think this case is hiding? And how can we help to make sure a tragedy like this one does not happen so easily again? We dance round in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. Today's episode of The Secret Sits was researched and written by the host, John Dodson. All episodes are engineered and mixed by me, Gabriel Dodson. Check the show notes for links to all of our social media. Email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts.